The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Uh, rule followers. Growing up, you just, you just followed the rules. If someone told you to do it, you did it. Were there, there's like a person, two, two, two rule followers. That's okay. Uh, people who were generally willing to follow the rules, but you needed to know why. Is that like, just like, I'll, I'll do what you say, just explain the reason. People that, if you say not to do it, I'm going to do it. That was you, just if, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm in the middle group, okay? I, I'm in the middle group, and, I, and I'm pushing 40 now, but I'm still in the middle group. You tell me to do something, I'm immediately going to question why. I'm just going to, I'm going to. I need to know the why behind stuff. Now, you convince me, and that, that's the key right there. You convince me that it's justified, that it's reasonable, you convince me that it should be done, I'm gonna do it. But I'm not gonna do it just because you say to do it. You're gonna have to tell me the why. And so here's just an example. Uh, People that have front load washing machines, you know, the new ones that don't use water and don't clean your clothes. So front load washing machine, we we got one of those. And it says clear as day on there, like after you're done doing the laundry, you should wipe that thing out. And I'm going, wipe it out? It's self-cleaning, it's a washing machine. Like, there's zero reason why I should have to come behind after doing laundry and clean the thing that cleaned my clothes. Until about three weeks after not doing that, and your clothes start to smell. Because for some reason in that seal, there's now just mold and hair and fuzz and all this stuff. So you you do wipe it out. And the first time I did that, I went, oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. And now, I'm not going to say I do it all the time, but I have, I have no problem. I would not have done that ever until I saw the why. But the first time you see the why, it's like, I think I'll wipe this out now. The why is important. For the last three weeks, we have been instructed from Paul through the book of Titus to live godly lives, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. He's encouraged older men and younger men and older women and younger women. He, we, we skipped over the verses about slaves, but we will come back to those. Okay, the Sunday after the 4th of July, we're, we're coming back to verses 8 and 9. Um, but he's instructed everybody, you got to live this way because you're in a society, in a culture that needs to see Jesus lived out. You need to... Be models in your faith, in your hope, in your endurance. You, you need to live this out. And then, I love Paul. He finishes the section with telling us why. You don't, I'm not just going to do it because you say to do it, especially if it's complicated. And living this kind of life is not easy. But he tells us why in verses 11 through 14. And those are the verses we're going to look at today. And this is my opinion, just my opinion his argument is quite compelling. It really is quite compelling, the why behind this, and and I hope you hear it today as well and look at your own life and determine whether or not you will choose to live in such a way. I'm gonna read verses 11 through 14 straight through, then we're gonna go back and get them one at a time. So Titus 2, 11 through 14, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, Remember, this is the why. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives now in this present age while we wait. We wait for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The why. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own who are actually eager to do what is good, to do what is right. Let's do these one at a time. Verse 11, I'm gonna read it again, okay? For the grace of God, oh, that's a beautiful phrase, has appeared and it offers, or the word there really is better translated brings, brings salvation to all people. Biblically, grace, if you're just thinking about grace, is unmerited favor. You get something that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. But here, the grace of God, that phrase, it's better understood, the beneficial activity of God towards his people. So so hear it again. The beneficial activity of God towards his people has appeared. It's here. We see it now. We see it in the person of Jesus. God's grace, the grace of God poured out towards us is essential because of our natural inability to meet the standard that God has set. He tells us to live this way. That standard is very, very, very high. That line is unattainable for us in our own flesh and our own abilities. But God has appeared in his grace and he's working beneficially on our behalf. God's grace brings salvation to all people. We have to be careful there or you start to fall into universalism. Okay, it's, it's not that God has saved all people but his grace is, suffi- is sufficient to save anyone. So that's what that means. His, his grace is more than sufficient for salvation, and that is available for all people. It has appeared. Paul used a fun word here. It's a word that the Roman emperors used to designate their arrival on the scene. And it's a word that is attached to divinity, okay? It's, most of the Roman emperors thought they were gods, and so... Paul just throws one in in a culture that would have clearly got what he was saying. Hey, just so you know, the grace of God, it's divine and it rules and it's sovereign and it's supreme and it's better than any of these emperors that claim that they are the ones that save. I love that he uses that language. It brings out a very cool picture. And this is the first why that we should live self-controlled, upright, godly lives because God has enabled it by bringing for us his grace. Okay, why why do we do it? Because God has sufficiently provided the means for which to do it. And that would be rude to look at the opportunity to live this amazing God-inspired and filled life and then to just say, ah, I'll just keep doing me. I'll just just do me. God, you, you thank you for your gift, but I don't really want it. Verses 12 and 13, Paul jumps back into more of what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live. Verse 12 says that the grace of God teaches us to say no to a couple things, okay? In our lives, we're supposed to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. We're supposed to say yes to these things, to living a self-controlled, upright, godly life now in this present age. So the grace of God teaches us worldly passions, no. Ungodliness, no. I don't want to have anything to do with those anymore. What I want to be about is self-controlled, upright, godly living right now. So 
ungodliness. Those would be thoughts, words, actions that oppose God. It's ungodly. Okay? Remember last week we were talking about, hey, your response to sin matters. It's going to be a great indicator of where your heart's at. Do you say, it's not that you're never going to do ungodly things, but when you do, do you say, no, I don't know, no, no, I don't want that. Do you say no to the thoughts, the words, the actions that oppose God? You say no to worldly passions. These are natural human ways of doing things that are actually hostile towards God. Unforgiveness, hate, those are just a few of the things I can think of that are opposed or hostile to God? Do you say no to those things or do you embrace them as, ah, it's just who I am. It's just what I do. It's just our world, man. This is just what it is. This is where we live. This is how it's going to be. Do you say yes to being self-controlled or sensible? Sensible, upright. That's conduct that cannot be condemned. It's above reproach. Do you say yes to that? That's how I want to live my life. Do you say yes to godly living living a life that is pleasing to God? Do you say yes? Do you say amen? Do you say, yep, I'm in to those things and no to the worldly passions and the ungodliness? And do you do so now? Not, oh, I'll do it later or, you know, when, when I mature a little bit or when, you know, when, when God comes back, it's all gonna be great. Do you do that now while you wait? Verse 13, verse 13. While you wait for the blessed hope, while you wait for what you hope in, while you wait for what you cannot see, while you wait for this appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One quick note on this. Kind of within the church, it is assumed, known, I I don't want to use the wrong word, but that that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. We call that the Trinity. It's it's one and three. It's a very hard concept to get, but I think if you've been around church, you kind of understand that. I do want you to see, though, that in Scripture, very few times is that specifically stated, but right here is one of them. God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible declaring that God and Jesus are one. Jesus is God. It's not that everything has to be completely understood, but this is a big deal, and I just wanted to point that out. So how do you live patiently? How is, how is your life being lived out now as you wait for the appearing of God? Romans 8 18 through 25, I think, gives the greatest commentary on how we should be waiting, on what we should be doing right now. Romans 8, 18 through 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Anyone suffering right now? Of course. Of course you are. Maybe not in this moment, but maybe in a previous season. Maybe it will be tomorrow. But Paul says, I'm so focused on what will come. When when God returns and and comes to reconcile all this, when, when that happens, I'm so focused on that, that this present suffering... You can't even compare it to how awesome that's going to be. The the way that I 
wait patiently for Jesus as I look at how hard this is now and I say, yeah, this is hard and yes, this stinks and boy, I would love to not have to be going through this, but there is a day coming when hope will present itself and that's gonna be so good that this isn't really worth comparing. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for those who are in Christ to be seen. They want that to happen because that means the end has come and that means that they no longer have to suffer. Who is they? It's the creation. What is the creation? Just think of a tree. Just think of a big old tree. The tree, having been created by God, having seen the fall, having seen what sin has done, just sits and waits for God to come back and collect his children. They wait for that. Verse 24, the creation was subjected to frustration also, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that had been Adam, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, just like we live, we die. We were intended to live forever until sin ruined that. Creation knows that, and that tree is just like, dang it, Adam. This was going to be great, but now I'm going to grow, and I'm going to decay, and I'm going to die, and I just can't wait for when that process stops. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Strong language. I'm a father of three. My wife had three C-sections, so... um, there was not the groaning of childbirth, but you're in a hospital with women who are birthing kiddos. Um, it sounds bad. Sounds quite painful from next door. Um, and not to belittle my wife, who had major abdominal surgery that would have put any man in this room out for three to six weeks. And three hours later, she's walking down the hallway with a baby. Girls are just tougher than guys, but they, it, it sounds very painful. And Paul's saying that all of creation groans like that, waiting and waiting and waiting. They're waiting up until this present time for the return, for the end of all of this, for the hope that will come. Verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we don't groan outwardly, there's no need to do that, but our hearts, our souls should groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we'll wait for it patiently. Do you groan inwardly thinking of the day when all of this will be over and you'll be with him? There's days I do, and there's days I don't. And part of living and waiting patiently and hoping perfectly is I believe constantly groaning and saying, yeah, this, there, there, are, there is good here, but there's so much better there. 
I am short for this life and I do not want this world. I want Jesus. And I want it so bad it hurts. It hurts deep. Is that you? Is that me? Is that how you live in this present age, yearning for more of God, yearning for the day when you just get to be with him? Do you hope in something that you cannot see? Better way of asking that, where is your hope? Where have you placed your hope? Where is your rock? Where is your encouragement? Where are your eyes fixed? Do you hope for what you cannot see? Do you struggle as you wait patiently? Do you, do you sit here and be like, I'm, I'm really struggling to be patient right now, God. I need you to need you. I need you to come back. I need you. You're so good. Do you struggle with that? Or as you live in this broken, hostile world, do you find yourself being drawn towards it? Trying to fill the void and trying to make sense out of something that never will. Do you glory in the idea of one day seeing glory, which is our great God and Savior, Jesus? Hey, you can take everything, but if I get Jesus, that's a win. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I wish on everything, church, I could sit up here and tell you that's me. I wish on everything I could be like, yep, every day that's me. I am, that is me. But oh, I like, I like some things in this world too much. And I go in seasons where I hunger and thirst ferociously for Jesus. And then I go in these dry seasons where he could be the furthest thing from my mind. And what Paul is trying to lay out here is the why. Why should we do this? Why should we have this hope? Why should we wait for the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Why should we do that? Well, it's because of what God's already done. It's because of him. Verse 14, I think, gives us the biggest why. Why we should live self-controlled, upright, godly lives as we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Why should we do it? Verse 14, because he gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, people that are eager to do what is good. He gave himself to redeem and to purify, to redeem us from the power of wickedness, which is sin, to redeem us from the penalty of sin. That one cost him his life to redeem us and to purify us. The idea of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ that allowed God to purchase for himself a covenant people, a group of people, his children. That is a lofty price for a bunch of sinners, don't you think? But you see, he's created us to be in community with us. We are created in the image of God and sin destroyed that union. And he said, I want it back so bad, I will pay that price to redeem and to purify and to put it back the way that I intended for it to be. I'll pay that price so that you don't have to. Church, that is a pretty stinking, compelling argument for why we should live 
self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And not only is it a good argument, remember verse 11, he enables us to do it. (laughs) It's one thing for you to tell me to do something that's hard. It's another thing for you to tell me to do it and then give me the strength to do it. Give me all the resources I need to do it. Give me the ability to do it. That's a pretty generous ask. And to me, that that why is, is there. That last phrase in verse 14, it ties a perfect bow around this entire section, really all of chapter two. God did this, God paid for this, God enables this so that he could have a group of people that are what? Eager, eager to do what is good. There are things that I do because I have to. There are things that I do because I want to. There are very few things that I am just flat out eager to do. Those are your loves. Those are your joys. Those are your passions. Those are the things that, as an adult, you probably don't get to do. The things that you're eager to do. The things that you you will put off everything else to do. And that is what Paul says should be our response to godliness. We should be eager to do it because of all that Jesus has done. And because of how God enables us to do it. I want to read verse 15 just to finish out this section. It it goes a little left curve here. But um, verse 15, and I want to come back to an eager life. Verse 15. These then are the things that you should teach. I love it. I love it. It it just proves the whole point. Paul is telling Titus what to teach. And he says, hey, you got to teach the why. You got to teach Jesus. Don't, don't just teach rules. That won't get you anywhere. These are the things you should teach. You encourage with the why. You encourage with Jesus. You rebuke with all authority because of Jesus. And don't let anyone despise you. Teach the why. Teach Jesus. He is the initiator, the sustainer. He is the reason. You do that, that you will see sound doctrine come. Don't just teach the rules. Because the goal is a people who have been redeemed by the Son of God and are eager, eager to do what is good. As the band comes back up here, are you eager for the grace of God? Are you eager for salvation that is offered to all people because of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are you eager to live an upright, self-controlled, godly life? Are you eager to do so because Jesus did his part? Jesus did his part. Are you eager to do yours? And I want to just throw it out and then allow it to marinate for a little bit while we respond here, but... Your eagerness or lack thereof is is a very good indicator of how the gospel, this good news, this teaching has taken root in your life. Because remember, to do something reluctantly is to not embrace the why. Growing up, I did a lot of things reluctantly because my parents told me, I don't, because. That's the why. Why do I do it? Because. 
Right? There's no why in that. That's terrible. It's a terrible reason. So you do some things reluctantly, but that's not to embrace the why. To do something eagerly is to own it, to own the why. And if Jesus is the why, then your eager embracing of good is a very great indicator of your heart. And if you're sitting here today going, I'm not eager, dude. I'm just not. I'm not eager. Can I tell you this? That's okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. That's okay. God's not going to come down here and beat you up. I'm not going to yell at you. It's okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Because the price was just way too great for you to be stuck in a way of life that offers no hope. So today, if you want to be eager, then I would encourage you to embrace Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And see if that doesn't start to stir something in your heart. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. As you wait, oh, you wait. Eagerly. For that day, that glorious appearing. Do you agree that it's a pretty compelling why? And once, once you convince me, and I'm convinced, then I'm going to want to do it. And I pray that today the Holy Spirit's convinced you to want more of him. We have communion in the back of the rooms to remember the sacrifice that bought for God, his people, eager to do what is good. We have communion. Take it as you want. You're going to have people up front to just pray with you and talk with you and about anything. Celebrate with you that God is good. Yes, amen. Let's do that. But today, let's, let's respond in faith to the why. Let's respond in faith to Jesus. Father in heaven, receive your praise. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray it. Come quickly. Come quickly, Jesus. Come and gather your people. We love you. And until that day, we will wait in the blessed hope that is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond to him.